This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intricasso. With me today for a third consecutive year is University of St. Thomas Engineering Professor John Abraham to discuss warming ocean heat or warming ocean temperatures or OHC ocean heat content. John, welcome back to the program. Oh, it's a pleasure to be on again. Uh, it's, it's really great to talk to your audience and to you again in 2024. Uh, thank you. Professor Abraham's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. Briefly on background, per research, Professor Abraham and his colleagues published four weeks ago in Advances in Atmospheric Sciences, once again, ocean temperatures, more specifically ocean heat content, dramatically increased in 2023. Oceans that cover over 70% of the Earth's surface absorb roughly 90% of the sun's heat trapped by our greenhouse gas emissions. This is problematic because, as the authors state in their intro, ocean heat content plays, quote-unquote, an essential role in the Earth's energy, water, and carbon cycles. Or as Professor Abraham wrote last year, oceans actually control the Earth's weather. That in turn, they state, quote-unquote, significantly affects human society. Think human survival. Warming ocean water disrupts marine life. That in turn substantially threatens the availability of availability of the food we eat and the oxygen we breathe. With me again to discuss ocean heat content is Professor John Abraham. So, uh, John, let's do this again, and I appreciate uh, your time. So the obvious question is how much? So 22 over, uh, 23 over 22, rather, did uh, the oceans warm? Well, the oceans warmed uh, year over year by about 13 to 14, what are called zeta joules, zeta joules. Now, that's a funny word that you don't often hear, but it basically is a number one with 21 zeros after it. So it's a huge number. And uh, to put this into context, um, it is like um, six to seven Hiroshima bombs going off that amount of energy every second of every day of every week for the entire year. It's an enormous amount of energy. Um, and, and your lead-in was really good um, about ocean warming. And if I could just take a, a brief moment to explain why this is such a big deal. Please. Basic, yeah, basically my team, which is an international team, we've got members from Europe, from the U.S., from South America, from Asia. Uh, we collect temperature data from sensors spread out all around the ocean. In fact, we've got robotic sensors moving up and down in the ocean right now as we speak, thousands of them. And we've got animals that have had temperature sensors attached to them and they're grabbing data as they swim. And we've got other, we've got buoys and moorings that are also gathering temperature data. So we have thousands and thousands of temperature measurements and we feed that in to an analysis that tells us whether the ocean's warmed or didn't warm in any given year. And as you mentioned, the oceans are really key to the environment. I mean, why do we care about the oceans? I'm in Minnesota, I'm not too close to the ocean, um, and a lot of people live inland, so why would they care? Well, oceans cover 70% of the planet. 
and oceans as you as you pointed out gather up 90% of global warming heat so the oceans are really key to what is happening with the planet what i like to say is global warming is really ocean warming if you want to know how fast how far the climate is going to change the answers in the oceans so the oceans are key they are the most important indicator of climate change and the the most important indicator of the health of our planet and that's why we we study oceans it can seem a little odd that we would focus mo- so much attention on the oceans but but that's really why it's because they are so important and last year i'll tell you was um was astounding in terms of the amount of heat in the oceans and this is boy i think it's 6 years in a row that we've set records so the dominoes keep falling and and we're almost seeming like a broken record as we report how much the oceans warm warm in any individual year but i think we're at 6 years in a row and the numbers are pretty astounding uh, thank you for that. You reminded me again of uh, Caleb Roberts's uh, book, The Ocean of Life, per your point. Uh, well taken. Uh, I think I noted this last year. Since the 40s, ocean heat ha- content has increased 428 zetajoules, or a billion trillion joules, and a new ocean heat content record per year coming about six years has been set nearly every year, nearly every year since uh, 1991. Your article also discusses, and we can just cover this, obviously when we talk about global warming, what we typically hear more about relative to the oceans is sea level rise. And I know you make note of that in this uh, January publication. Can you make a brief comment about sea level rise? Yeah, sure. What, what a great question. So um, the temperature of the oceans and the level of sea, the sea level are closely connected. And the reason why is as the ocean waters warm, they expand. And as they expand, they, they rise. They take up more volume. And current, about, about a half of the sea level rise that we have experienced on, uh, because of humans has been due to this thermal expansion effect. And so, so, in fact, there's really two reasons the ocean levels are rising. One is ice is melting, uh, basically in Greenland uh, the, and, and Antarctica. Those two big ice sheets are melting, and as the water melts, it flows into the ocean. That causes ocean rise. And in addition, there's this thermal expansion. As water heats up, it wants to expand. And those two things combine to give you the total amount of ocean rise. So how fast uh, is ocean rising? Well, we expect about a meter, two two, two to three feet by the end of 2100. And to put that in perspective... You know, it doesn't sound like much, mm-hmm. but if you're near a, a a gradual beach, a meter is a big deal. Uh, around the world, 150 million people live within one meter of sea level. In fact, in Bangladesh alone, 20 million people will be displaced because of sea level rise. So when we think about sea level rise, it definitely will affect places in the United States, but it's also going to affect countries around the world. And that kind of strife that will occur when you get climate refugees is a real concern. I mean, imagine that you're India and your neighbor, Bangladesh, is going to have 20 million climate refugees. What does that do to the the uh, relationships between those countries? What does that do to potential political strife? 
I'll just say a brief comment about the U.S. Uh, the areas that will be most affected in the U.S. are the southeastern part of the U.S., especially Florida, Louisiana, Georgia, and the Carolinas. Um, if any of your guests live in Miami, they probably notice that parts of Miami are starting to flood with high tide. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so this is, this is happening live. This, this rising of the ocean waters is happening in real time. We can observe it. And it, the, the thing about the oceans is the oceans have a lot of what's called inertia. Uh, inertia is, here's a way to describe inertia. Imagine a train is coming down a train track and it, and, and a car gets stuck on the train track. The train will put on its brakes and it might take a half a mile for that train to stop because the train has so much mass and has so much inertia. It takes a long time to slow down a train. The earth is just like that. The earth's climate has a ton of inertia. And what that means is when processes get started, like sea level rise or ocean warming, they're very hard to stop. So the type of sea level rise that we're already seeing in Miami, in Bangladesh, in Southeast Asia are going to continue on into the future, even if we reduce our our greenhouse gas emissions. I mean, we will still get some ocean level rise, and that's because of the inertia of the ocean. So it's a big deal. Sea level rise is a big deal, both in the U.S. and around the world, and it is a direct consequence of what we've done to the Earth's atmosphere. Right. So the more general point is, even if we eliminated uh, greenhouse gas emissions today, because of this inertia effect through the biosphere, we're going to continue to see more warming, rising sea level elevations, et cetera, et cetera. Let me, let me ask you next. Um, we discussed this. In fact, you did note, uh, in your article, uh, weather effects, rain bombs, you turn them, otherwise turn atmospheric rivers, New Zealand, Beijing, Alaska, India, Italy, Slovenia, Japan, Vermont, Kenya, California, et cetera. So, uh, compounding this is this year's El Nino effect. Can you comment on that as a contributing variable here? Yeah, another great question. So, uh, and this really strikes at why scientists are so active in communicating their science, because this stuff matters. We're not just talking about polar bears and penguins. We are talking about the uh, infrastructure of, of society and human health impacts. I mean, the oceans control our weather and, and there are tremendous, there's been a tremendous increase of costs due to climate change in the U S alone over the last five or so years, we've spent around 250 billion with a B dollars on climate related weather disasters each year. And those costs have risen dramatically, even when adjusted for inflation since 1980. So the cost of climate change is staring us into the face. And, you know, people people used to say, well, it's too expensive to do something about climate change. We're now seeing it's too expensive not to do anything about it. It's too expensive to just let business as usual happen. $250 billion per year in the U.S. Let's just think about that number for a while. Now, what are some of the actual uh, impacts on weather? As air blows over the ocean air picks up heat and moisture or humidity and heat and humidity are what create weather so w- warmer oceans are creating more moist and 
more warm weather patterns, which are supercharged. And as a result, we're getting two things happening. In some areas, we're getting more intense storms, especially more heavier rainfall. Uh, and we're getting precipitation that is more often in rain than in snow. So I live in Minnesota, and this has been a warm winter, but we've had rain every single month this year. And we also had rain every single month the year before. I mean, if any of your guests, if they're from Minnesota, to think about rain in January, two years in a row, that's just bonkers. Uh, two years ago in Minnesota, we had 18 tornadoes in December. This is unheard of stuff. So that warming oceans are definitely impacting weather. And a rule of thumb is this. If you are in an area that is currently wet, like the eastern part of the eastern third of the U.S., your weather is going to become wetter and more prone to flooding. If you're in an area that is currently dry, like the western one third of the U.S., your weather is generally becoming drier and the rain is coming less often, but in much heavier downbursts. So we just had this atmospheric river storm in uh, that, that hit L.A., I believe, right. caused tremendous flooding. And that's exactly the type of thing that we predicted with warming oceans. You get fewer but heavier rainfalls, and it's the heavy rainfalls that cause flooding. So areas that are wet are becoming wetter. Areas that are dry are becoming drier. And areas that are neither wet or dry, like the middle third of the U.S., they're not becoming wetter or drier on average, but their weather is coming in heavier downbursts as well. So, uh, you, and you mentioned El Nino. Uh, very briefly, El Nino is a naturally occurring weather uh, ocean temperature pattern in the Pacific, basically from northern Chile to Australia. If you draw a line from northern Chile to the area near Australia, that part of the Pacific gets warmer and colder every few years. And that's the El Nino cycle. In currently, which is February 2024, we are in the midst of a pretty powerful El Nino. And that is adding a little bit extra to the ocean temperatures. So we have two things happening this year. We have a warmer ocean because of humans. And we also have a warmer Pacific because of El Nino. And both of those two phenomena are pulling in the same direction this year, which is contributing to some of the extra crazy weather that we've got. Thank you. So uh, this was basically from the California-Mexico border up until as far north as, say, Santa Barbara, uh, otherwise termed the uh, Pineapple Express. Um, you know, I noticed uh, part of your bio, your bio states in part that you have expertise in burn injuries. And I note that because... Last summer, I read reports that water temperatures off of Florida were 100 degrees. Yes. Yeah, that's right. I, and I mean, it is a bonkers level temperature in the ocean, in the oceans off of Florida. And, you know, there's an old idiom, a watch pot never boils. And that's a truism. It takes a lot of energy to raise the temperature of water. Water is very dense and it has an excellent capacity to absorb energy. Um, and so you can add a lot of heat to water without much of a temperature change. Uh, and that's true whether it's on your stove or whether it's in the oceans. And so when, you, when we have temperatures that are in excess of 100 degrees Fahrenheit off the coast of Florida, that tells you a 
monstrous amount of energy had to go into that ocean to make those waters that hot. I mean, the magnitude of the heat that has been dumped in the oceans is really astounding. And it's um, a, a great indicator was what we saw off the coast of Florida recently. And, you know, when temperatures get to 100 or so degrees, that has, tr- that has some real consequences, not only for humans, but also for, for marine life. Some marine animals can move as temperatures get to be too hot, but others can't. Uh, and a classic example is coral. When temperatures exceed about 33 degrees Celsius, um, that makes it harder for corals to survive. And we get what are called coral bleaching Mm -hmm. episodes. And and that's really detrimental to the entire ecosystem in the ocean. So uh, because uh, much of the ecosystem relies upon the corals as the base of the food chain. So when you see temperatures in excess of 100 degrees off the coast of Florida, we should be thinking about the negative consequences that has for humans, but also the, the animals in the ocean that we rely upon. And it's an indicator of how much heat is actually going into those waters. Right. Uh, the, the other related relative to, let's call it ocean health, I guess, uh, that you study and discuss is uh, salinity or salinity contrast, SC. There's an SC index. And we discuss certainly uh, ocean acidification uh, in the past. These two are uh, complementary related problems. Um, and these uh, problems continue to uh, become worse. Uh, acidification, uh, particularly. Comments on those? Yeah, sure. So um, oceans move. You know, it, uh, water moves a lot. If you get slide into your bathtub, you'll notice that the water sloshes around in the bathtub. Similar things are happening in the oceans. We actually have waters near the ocean surface that will fall down deep into the ocean water and then some deep water will rise to the surface and that the the technical term for that is downwelling and upwelling and that's really really important because when surface waters uh, so when when water is near the surface of the ocean it gets a lot of that sunlight um, at which warms it up and when the water warms you get evaporation which leaves a saltier water Mm -hmm. Hotter water is generally saltier. Now, salty water is heavy. It's dense. And and anyone who's swam in the ocean or swam, especially in the Great Salt Lake of Utah, will know it's really uh, much easier to float in salty water because the water is so dense. So saltiness or salinity matters for buoyancy in the ocean. And And buoyancy is what causes ocean waters to rise and fall, rise and fall. What we also discovered in our study was that that buoyancy is changing. And it turns out some parts of the ocean are becoming more stable. That is, the ocean waters near the top stay there longer. And they don't fall down to the bottom of the ocean, which means the ocean waters near the bottom don't rise to the top. And that's a bad thing because when ocean waters fall down to the bottom of the ocean – They carry carbon dioxide and they carry their heat. And when the cold waters from the bottom of the ocean rise up, they are, they have a different saltiness and they also are cooler. And that helps, um, we, the, the, the technical term is buffer. It buffers climate change. What we discovered is 
the oceans are mixing less because of global warming. Those ocean waters near the top are not falling as fast. They sit at the top, they get saltier and hotter, and that has added consequences for weather. So, uh, you know, it seems like an esoteric subject, salinity of the ocean, but it's actually really, really important for both the climate, but also biodiversity in the ocean, because as the ocean waters mix, they bring up nutrients from the bottom of the ocean, and that helps keep uh, plants and animals living. So there's a variety of reasons that we're concerned about salinity. And, and we're tracking not only how fast the oceans are warming, but how fast they're mixing and becoming saltier. So since uh, I, I thought this would lead to this following question, so let me ask it, and this is this overturning circulation, and you know where I'm going. This is yep. the, the AMOC. There was uh, uh, more uh, research on this subject uh, published in the last few weeks in Science Advances. The breakdown, and this is the Atlantic Meridian Meridional, let me see if I... <laughs> meridional. Meridional, right. Yeah. Meridional overturn, uh, overturning circulation, uh, AMOC. Can you... Um, so this, of course, has everything to do... Uh, the primary concern here is with weather patterns and the extent to which the breakdown of AMOC will cool Northern Europe. Um, so since we talked about uh, waters rising and falling, let's let if you can give an overview of the concern about the AMOC. Yeah, sure. AMOC, A-M-O-C, refers to a, essentially a stream of ocean water um, in the Atlantic. And it starts off the east. It's, it passes the east coast of the U.S. And it travels across the Atlantic um, to the area near the uh, Britain and Iceland. And then... It turns around and it goes toward Canada, and then it falls in the ocean water. Because as the ocean water is near uh, uh, Iceland and Greenland, it cools down. And that cooling down makes it denser, and so the ocean water falls from the surface down to the deeper parts of the ocean. And it allows the ocean water to reverse its path. So basically, it's a conveyor belt. The ocean water is near the surface of the ocean for part of the time, and then it falls to the ocean bottom, and then it returns, it turns around and re- retraces its steps. Now, why is this important? Because the ocean waters bring heat up to Europe. And that's actually why England's weather is so mild. England and uh, the place that I live, Minnesota, have about the same latitude. England's weather is much more mild than Minnesota Mm -hmm. and much of the U.S., and that's because these ocean waters are are warm off the coast of England. Now, um, there is a concern that this flow of water will stop, and the concern is this. If too much of Greenland melts, and Greenland's got an ice sheet on it, uh, if too much of the Greenland ice sheet melts, that melting ice flows into the ocean, and it's fresh. It's not salty. And because it's not salty, it is very buoyant. And so that salty, that fresh water wants to sit on top of the ocean and just stay there. It doesn't want to sink. And if that happens, and if, if too much of this happens, then the, the AMOC cannot retrace its steps. It can't sink to the bottom of the ocean and return southward. 
And, and so essentially it will bump into itself. It will shut off. And if that happens, then the warm water from the eastern coast of the U.S. traveling up to Europe will stop, which, makes, which will make Europe colder. And it will make the tropics warmer. So the, the ocean patterns, the AMOC current, helps keep the northern Atlantic warm, warmer than it otherwise would be, and it helps cool down the equator region. And that would stop. Uh, if the AMOC halts, then the equator would be warmer, and England would, uh, northern Europe would be colder, and it would be just a complete disaster. I saw reports of up to 10 Celsius, which is 18 degrees Fahrenheit colder in in Europe if this AMOC uh, stopped. And I think there was a movie about this, The Day After Tomorrow or something like this. Uh, the, the Day After Tomorrow, mm-hmm. I think, was based on this very premise that this important ocean current might stop. So scientists are watching this. It would be a complete disaster if it actually stops. And you're right. There was a recent study out, uh, boy, within the last week, uh, raising some alarms about whether we're on a path for this ocean current called AMOC to actually halt. And it's something we're watching very closely. Right. Relative to the uh, southern hemisphere, they say the wet and dry seasons in the Amazon would flip. And then the conclusion is this was to occur. Uh, the phrase was making adaptation almost impossible um, per your comment. Speaking of um, uh, the end, potential end of uh, AMOC, uh, we did discuss, I do want to revisit this. This is probably the most frightening uh, aspect of all this. Two years ago in our discussion, you noted at some point the ocean's ability to absorb uh, greenhouse gas emissions will rapidly decline or cease. What's the what's the latest thinking uh, concerning at least the ocean's ability to absorb the amount of heat it has been to date? We don't have a timeline on it, right. but we are still concerned, and the concern goes back to what we were just discussing discussing about salinity. Um, as ocean, look, the oceans are our friend. As we pollute the atmosphere, the oceans are gobbling up about half of the carbon dioxide. And the, that carbon dioxide gets caught in the ocean waters and it gets stored at the ocean bottom. And that's a good thing for us. Now, the ocean waters have a, uh, a, a what's called a saturation. They have a limit to how much carbon dioxide they can absorb. And the longer water is at the surface of the ocean, the more carbon dioxide it absorbs and the closer the waters get to what's called saturation. So as we reduce the mixing of the ocean, we're l- reducing the ability of fresh water to rise to the ocean surface. And that fresh water is great at gobbling up carbon dioxide. We're keeping this old stale water near the ocean surface too long. And it reduces its ability to gobble up the carbon dioxide. So um, the salinity study that we were discussing earlier and the ocean's ability to to take in carbon dioxide and heat are interrelated. Unfortunately, we don't have a better timeline on when the ocean might get exhausted. 
Um, when will the ocean lose its ability to gather up carbon dioxide and heat? We don't know when it'll happen. We're concerned it will happen. And, you know, it, this brings us to something that scientists are focused on, which is risk assessment. You know, if, let's talk about AMOC. AMOC, if that shuts down, that is going to be a disaster for large parts of the, of the world's economies and uh, society and infrastructure. Let's say that AMOC has a 10% chance of stopping within the next 50 years. On the one hand, it's only 10%. We don't really have to worry about it. On the other hand, it's such a big risk that we should worry about it, even though it's only a 10% chance. So what scientists like to do is we like to balance the likelihood that something will happen with the severity of uh, with respect to if it happened, what how severe would the consequences be? And unfortunately for climate change, we're staring at many severe tipping points. AMOC is one. If AMOC shuts down, that is a tipping point for the climate, and we won't have control over the climate after AMOC shuts down. Another tipping point is melting permafrost in the Arctic. Mm-hmm. Another uh, tipping point is once the two great ice sheets start to collapse in Greenland and Antarctica, that's a tipping point. We can't recover from that. So scientists will talk, you know, we think the chances of something happening are 50%, 10%, 25%. And and if those number, if those percentage numbers are low, people might not be concerned, as concerned as they should be. But people should know that the consequences of any tipping point being crossed are unbelievable. I mean, we will lose control of the Earth's climate if these tipping points are crossed. So even though the chances might be 50% or 25%, we still would uh, be well served by being very cautious and being very concerned about these tipping points. We're very close to some of them, and we don't actually know when they will happen. You know, uh, AMOC might collapse in 50 years. It might collapse in 100 years. We won't know until it's too late. And that uh, suggests that we take a precautionary principle as we think about how to handle some of these risks. Because rest assured, the financial, social, and human life consequences of any of these tipping points being crossed is just uh, hard to put into words. Right. There's increasing literature about tipping points via feedback loops. The phrase has been used, the hothouse earth effect. Uh, last I looked, there are numbered about 40-odd of these. And in fact, there is a view we have crossed a few. And in fact, they're usually correlated to average um, temperature increase. So the concern is if we get between 1.5 and 2.0 Celsius, we'll have crossed several more of these. Um, and as you note, um, there's, there's, no, there's no remedy. Uh, then we get uh, unabated uh, continued warming. So, so. Yeah, actually, let's put a point, let's put a pin in this and let's uh, expand on it a little bit more. Let's talk about methane. If the permafrost in northern Canada and northern Russia melts or thaws. Yeah, that's a number that, one concern. Absolutely. That, right. Absolutely. The number one concern, the amount of methane stored in the permafrost will dwarf any greenhouse gases that humans can conceivably emit. Now, let's think about that. We would no longer have control. The emissions would skyrocket. And as the emissions skyrocket, you get more warming, which means you get more melting, which means you get more methane release, which means you get more warming, 
which means you get more melting, right. which feedback. means you get more, right. that's that feedback. Exactly. I mean, we would not be in the driver's seat at that point. And that is, uh, it's tremendously scary. I mean, I, I tend to be optimistic. I'm an optimistic scientist because I think that we have the control of the Earth's climate in our hands now, and we can do some really smart things to save money and the environment right now. But if we crossed one of these bad tipping points, it is a whole new ball game, And that's why we would be well served to be cautious uh, as we approach these tipping points. And just remember, we, we are approaching the tipping points now. We don't know when we will cross the line. But we, and in fact, we won't know we've crossed the line until after it has started. Mm -hmm. So let's be cautious and let's be prudent and let's be better stewards of the planet so that our, our descendants can have a, a high quality life such as we've had. Right. Planetary health. CH4 is the big concern because methane, as we know, has a high GWP global warming potential uh, compared to uh, carbon dioxide. So with that, Warning or caution, uh, John, well described and well worth describing. I appreciate your time on this. Again, congratulations on uh, your results from your uh, 23 study. And I'd like to say I, I hope we can do this next year, but I should say I hope we don't have to do this next year, though I'm sure we will, uh, assuming we're still I'm, at it. Yeah, I'm. you know, um, we, have the, we have the ability to – do something meaningful about the climate. We can't stop climate change, but we can we can turn climate change from being really, really, really bad to just being really bad. Right. And we have the potential to change trajectory in our hands right now. I mean, we know how to use energy more wisely. We know how to be to insulate our homes, to have more efficient vehicles, and to use electricity more smarter. And if we do that, we're going to reduce emissions and save money. In addition, we know how to get energy from wind and solar and hydro. And in fact, in the U.S., wind and solar are cost comparative with coal right now. So you can save money and the environment at the same time. And, you know, in the past, it was a, a, a measure of personal virtue to put solar panels on your house. Now it's a measure of frugality. Um, I have 34 solar panels on my house. Sounds like a lot. I power two cars that are electric. I don't pay for gas. And in fact, I just got a check from my power company, $650 paid to me last year because of my production of energy. The return on investment for my solar panels is seven years, which means after seven years, I paid off the initial investment and it's all profit. So we can do this. And we can save money and the environment at the same time, and we can create jobs, high-skill, high-paid jobs in the U.S. I would rather pay a farmer for electrons from a turbine on his or her property than to send uh, our sons and daughters to defend oil routes from company, mm -hmm. countries that are not friendly to us. So let's be smart about this, and, and let's become a leader in the clean energy economy because right now, the leader in clean energy around the world is China. Absolutely. I do tons of work. I do tons of work in Africa. I, I've started a solar power company in the developing world. And the only products you can buy are Chinese products. And the Chinese are smart. They're strategic. They want to own the green energy economy. 
And we are getting our butts kicked economically because we're missing out on this very lucrative uh, new economy. So let's be smart. Let's save money. Let's develop more clean energy. Let's get these high paying jobs and we'll save the environment at the same time. It's a win-win-win situation. And uh, compliments to Minnesota. I do know that in the community solar program throughout the country, after Florida, Minnesota generates the most uh, community solar, despite the view that how could it possibly it's so far north. So with that, with that, John, thank you again for your time. Very appreciative. And I wish you um, continued success with your work. Uh, thanks for having me on. It was a great, uh, great pleasure. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.